So last week, our six-year-old daughter looks up at us with her sweet, beautiful face and says, would you rather have a hole in your head where everyone can see all of your thoughts or would you rather be dead? That's the question. And then she said, I'd rather be dead. (laughs) The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It doesn't matter how cute she is. She's still got my DNA. Poor thing. I'm going to get her started on this Holocaust books ASAP. Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. On that note, what's uh, what else is on your mind, guys? How's it going? What's the last couple of weeks been like? You know, we've survived a few hurricanes. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, yeah, as as we're speaking, we just beta has just like caused some flooding, but not anything too disastrous. But um, the fact yeah, it's called beta is just absurd. I beta. Know, I know. Yeah. It's like a fish. I mean, it's just hard to focus on anything super negative right now because there's like a lot of it. So I'm just kind of, uh, yeah, I don't know. Here's my, this is my weekly plug every week for anxiety medication. RJ, how are you? (laughs) The Mockingcast brought to you by (laughs) Pfizer. Uterine. Exactly. (laughs) Um, I'm doing well. It finally is a little bit cooler than it has been. I feel like fall has kind of arrived in South Florida, which means it's like 83 <laughs> rather than 93. Right. Um, you know, so that's what passes for fall here. Um, but I'm doing well, you know, I think as is well documented on this podcast, I don't exercise, but I actually did last week. Mm. Um, huh. I went and uh, there's a little park near us where there's this like, um, tennis clinic you can show up for which is pretty much every day and so i went and played like tennis last week friday and saturday for the first time in i don't know five years or something i'm still sore uh it's it's five days five days later but i'm hoping to recover uh in time for uh to play some more tennis this week so that was a Mm -hmm. that was a little sign of life I feel Sweet. like, and uh, I would love to, in school to, to and witness that. I, don't, I know, me too. I was just thinking that, like, what did like this like lumbering hasn't exercised in five years? RJ looked like. Well, I rolled onto the court, and uh, yeah, uh, it was really fun. So I'm doing okay. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Dave, how about how you, Dave? You? How about you, Soapbox? What's up, Soapbox? Yeah, speaking of exercise, I don't, I, oh. I, I don't do anything but that these days. I'm just Chris Pratt. I'm just calling you Chris Pratt. That's 100%. what you are. Just kidding. It's been a, it's been a pretty good week. I, uh, I just wrote about something on the website. Actually, I, I just, I just binged the um, trilogy of movies by, that Richard Linklater made over the last thirty years. The Before trilogy, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before oh. Midnight. And uh, I'm just sort of floating on air from those. I I thought they were fantastic. I'd kind of avoided them because I knew that they were so talky. And even though I like other talky films, these were just, um, 
don't know, just aff- affirming about what's 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 important in life. And I, I don't know, I found it to be uh, therapeutic and uplifting. Um, you guys seen those movies? Yes. Yes. It's been a while, but yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, there, the first the first one takes oh, yeah. place in 1994. Yeah, and it does. Two people getting off a train in Vienna, and I I actually spent a year in Vienna as a study abroad, oh. and uh, maybe a few years after that. So it kind of it, it, it's all in, in keeping with my nostalgia trip and my yes. you know the flesh pots of Egypt uh, that I just mm-hmm. preached about. Uh, <laughs> But it uh, that it, it it brought you it brought me up into the future where the where the most recent one is the the their the guy is forty one years old so mm-hmm. anyway a little bit of uh, therapy via art which was a good thing for me uh, and speaking of therapy through art Lana Del Rey yeah mm. do you guys like do you guys know her music do you do you enjoy uh, her stylings you know she's I mean she's got a good beat i don't know the young people like her <laughs> she's pretty she's kind of controversial she was hated when she, she first came out because she was she she sort of mixed a little bit of hip-hop with sort of indie pop and sort of croony stuff but she's since become people thought she was just a product and uh she is it, it is lizzie elizabeth grant is playing a character named lana mm-hmm. del rey mm-hmm. this sort of um you know, heroin chic or uh, uh, damsel in distress, uh, the sort of underbelly of sunshine state. Um, you sound like almost famous right now. Just you sound <laughs> like you're very. He's you're just like very, reading reviews from that pretty movie. Pretty much, pretty much the inner Rolling Stone critic just coming uh, out. I knew we right shouldn't now. have talked about music, but we're not going to talk about her music. I love her music. I think it's Good. fantastic. She's her. Uh, she's a. She's a bit of a genius, I think. Um, and uh, she's got a new album coming out called Chemtrails Over the Country Club, which I think is a great title for a record. Um, but she was interviewed in Interview Magazine last week, and this is why we're talking about her, because she had some very interesting things to say about mental health and mm-hmm. uh, sort of spiritual crises in the pandemic. This was in uh, early September. She was interviewed, actually, by her producer, Jack Antonoff, who uh, just produces just about everyone, Taylor Swift, the whole, the whole nine. And this is what she said. I subscribe to the idea that what's going on in the macrocosm, whether it be in the presidency or a virus that keeps us isolated, is a reflection of what's going on in the individual home and inside bedrooms and what people intimately talk about. I think there's been existential panic for a long time, but people haven't been paying attention to it because they've been too busy buying shoes. And shoes are cute. I love shoes. But now that you can't go shopping, you have to look at your partner and be like, I've lived with you, I've lived with you for 20 years, but do I even know you? You realize maybe you've only ever allowed yourself to scratch the surface of yourself because if you went any deeper, you might have a mild meltdown for no reason, just out of the blue, and no amount of talking could explain why. I got a lot of shit for not only talking about it, but talking about lots of other things for a super long time. I don't feel justified in it because I'm not the kind of artist who's ever going to get justified. I will die an underdog, and that's cool with me. But I was right to ask, why are we here? Where did we come from? What are we doing? What happens if this insane, crazy sci-fi crisis happens and then you're stuck with yourself and you're stuck with your partner who doesn't pay attention to you? I'm not saying it's more relevant than ever, but my concern for myself, the country, the world, I knew we weren't prepared for something like this mentally. I also think it's a really good thing that we've gotten to this point where we have to bump up against ourselves. I'm not trying to say I'm a holy roller because I'm not, but I think people are looking up to the sky a bit more and being like, why? What's the reason? Lana Del Rey. 
<laughs> do you think she's do you think she's right? What uh she, what she's saying is that the pandemic has just exposed what was already going on or um has it has it is it responsible for uh the mental health crises? Um I I I tend to think that one comes before the other, by the way. I I I that or that circumstances can amplify or exacerbate situations, but they very seldom create them. And we've been talking on this podcast for years now about the deteriorating mental health and, in fact, the spiritual crisis of what it means to be alive and the distraction and the nonstop kind of self-medication and self-salvation project. But what... Um, do, do you do you think this is true? What what where what is this? What does it evoke for you? I, it makes me think of um, an article that I I think I referenced on here a few weeks ago, but um, about how suicide ideation is up for clergy, mm. um, and how uh, I guess it was it's been about a week and a half ago. Um, uh, a young clergy person um, in the Episcopal Church. Um, took her own life and there was like immediate this kind of like thing on the internet where and I did not know this person a lot of people didn't know but kind of took the story and was like well it's because of the pandemic like Mm -hmm. and clergy stress is so high and I kind of love what Lana Del Rey is saying here because it's like maybe but maybe there was mental illness there maybe there's mental illness there for all clergy who are like over functioning you know surviving um trying to raise money trying to preach the gospel and also trying to like fall into whatever political you know ideal that uh, a a whole range of brains has for them <laughs> mm-hmm. you know i mean I, I i think there's a lot I think that's a completely different way of looking at the situation that's very helpful for me, which is like, but what if we've all been carrying this stuff anyway, and now we just have the space for it to kind of come up for us. But it also makes me think of, and I think I said that again, like this was a thing that kind of came up for me this summer, but your brother, Simeon, he put something up on social media. We're buddies on social media. Simeon is the reason I write for Mockingbird. So shout out to Simeon's all. Hmm. Um, but he put something up about sort of work being an idol, like early in this. Um, and that I think about that probably every other day. Um, really? yeah, oh yeah. Because I, because we were, we were forced to pull back from so much of our work and I don't think we would have gotten to know each other or our kids at the level that we were kind of forced to get to know each other. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. Alongside that, though, I would say, you know, if there are hard things, if there are things you haven't dealt with, if you don't know your spouse at all, if you haven't spent any time with your children, this summer was a a mess mm. for you. You know, I mean, it was a mess for everybody, right? I'm not, I'm not saying it wasn't a mess for us. I'm not saying there weren't things that we weren't like, Oh my gosh, we've got to talk about this. We've got to deal with this. But like, if there was like undealt with dysfunction, my goodness, you know what I mean? Like it all rose to the top. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's true. It's true. I think that's why, <laughs> that's why it's hard to get appointments with any therapist in the country right now. Yeah. I mean, Simeon com- has like the nicest family ever and they didn't have any of that. I'm oh, pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. So. Simeon is just a, <laughs> well, what can I say? Simeon just walks on water. He does. Okay. RJ, what do you think? And uh, poor Simeon's going to be like, why are they talking about me? <laughs>
I, it's difficult for me to talk about because there's been so much upheaval in my in my oh, personal yes. life over the last eight months, Aren't and I'm like, how much you know how how do I ch- how much of this do I chalk up to the virus, and how much do I chalk up to moving and starting a new job, and and um, one of my kids starting college and living in a place where uh, you know we have some friends, but nothing like the social support network that we had in Houston, you know, because we just everyone's on lockdown. So it's difficult for me to talk about. Um, I do think it's true. I mean, I, I tend to be pretty introspective anyway, and I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a mystery to myself. Mm. You know, I'm always wondering, like, why, why is it that some days are good and some days are not? And I don't really – and I try to figure it out. I'm like, is it because uh, – I'm an extrovert. I love people. I love being around people. And, and sometimes when I start my day interacting with people, that day is better than just, mm. like, sitting down and answering emails or making phone calls or – writing a sermon, but sometimes that's not the case. Um, and, and sometimes I, uh, I get tons of sleep and I f- don't feel great. And sometimes I stay up till 2 a.m. Uh, watching, um, you know, the Hillary Swank Mars show on Netflix. And I feel great the next day, you know, even though I got five hours sleep. So it's just like, I, I don't, I don't understand. Um, and of course, you know, I've done enough therapy and kind of mindfulness to know to not dwell on it too much and sort of let it go. And, and, try to live in the rhythms of life and be a little bit merciful with myself. And I, I gave a whole sermon like a month ago about um, the, the, our, our, our amazing inconsistency as people, mm. right? How one day, one moment we feel great, one moment not so much. And that, I think that, has, that connected with people because I think that's been driven home in a way by this pandemic that um, it wasn't before, right? Um, but I'm, I, I go back and forth on distraction because you can't... Um, you can't think about yourself and your relationships and your all the time. You just can't do it, right? right. You're gonna go. You're gonna go crazy. And yeah. we need other people. We we do need community. But you don't need the same person all the time. <laughs> you know, sometimes you need somebody different. Um. So I, you know, I do think that. Mental illness is a thing. It's always been a thing. It's always going to be a thing. I do think this isolation and loneliness and, and losing these idols and these um, these hooks on which we hang our sense of self uh, has been incredibly difficult and exacerbated some, some a lot of that. But I, I also just have tremendous compassion for people and for myself, you know, because then I also, I, I talk to people here in Florida who do, who do have highly developed social networks and they also, and are very positive people. And they're like, yeah, I could cry at any point. Yeah. You know, I could sort of lose it. And I, you know, I have friends here, but I haven't seen them in months either. Yeah. You know, like we're on lockdown and I, I may have friends, but it doesn't really make a difference. Well, she talks about elsewhere in the interview is that she's sort of encouraged by the some of the reckoning that's happening, not only in, ter- you know, in her own industry with the, <laughs> all the divorces. Me too. <laughs> well, there's that. I know. But um, yeah. she's more about the, the fact that you have to confront yourself a little bit, because I don't think you, you say, oh, uh, we 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 haven't been in, in danger of uh dwelling too much on what we're actually like. I think from where I'm sitting, we've been over-distracted. We have been over-entertained. We haven't been sort of overly uh, solipsistic or something. It, 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 we may give the appearance of being narcissistic, but in fact, people, one of the ways that they're distracting themselves from themselves is through an endless amount of selfies, is through positioning themselves constantly. And that's why I found what she's what she's talking about. Uh, she, she sees it as a reason for hope um, mm. rather than a reason for despair. The other thing, you know, 
when she says that the macrocosm is a reflection of the microcosm, this is one of the reasons why I, you know, in, in, as a preacher, I'm always trying to look for this more personal angle. It's not because I don't believe sure. community is important or that, uh, you know, ma- movements and policies aren't important. But I know that we know that, and this is what that those movies I was talking about bring to mind, is that what's really going on with people is... Um, is the desire to love and be loved and things like that. And if what's if, if people are really unhappy or really lonely, that's going to become a, a, a conduit for anger. It's going to become a resentment thing. It's these groups of people are groups of individual people. And so we address them as though your individual suffers, which is what she's really saying, is that people have been suffering for a long time and yeah. that this has maybe revealed a little bit more of that. So I find that... So, so basically when we're saying... Well, well, if I just impose a, a law out there to change the circumstance, well, then it's going to filter down into people's hearts. And that's not really true. I love what Martin Luther King always says. He's like, the law cannot make me love you, but it can stop you from lynching me. You know, I mm-hmm. think that that's, mm-hmm. there is a, p- a place for the law. It's extremely important. But he also right. recognizes that uh, by changing the outside circumstances, it's not going to have, it's not going to, it doesn't go outside in, it goes inside out. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. a key insight, I think. And it's, I think that's what Del Rey is saying here. And it's not what people want to hear because if we can just keep the problem out there, then, then we can uh, manage it or we can, we can keep it away from ourselves and, and detach from it in some way. Uh, and that's more easy to control than to say, well, actually, I think what did Stephanie uh, Phillips say in that piece about social media? She says, I am the person I vilify, you know, online. Mm. And that's a that's a that's a uncomfortable, but also a, also a compassion inducing place to be. Sorry. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I, I it makes me first. I just want to acknowledge because I feel like other people are noticing this that people's online discourse. I mean, I, I love what Lana Del Rey is saying that we have to deal with ourselves, but I do think that instead of doing that, a lot of people are going online and discourse online has been, I think more vitriolic than I've ever seen it be. I mean, like basic, like I saw a photograph of a friend from high school the other day and it quickly descended into like four letter words and stuff about defunding the police. And it was like just her at a vacation like photo. I mean, like it was crazy. Um, and pretty violent language actually about like coming to people's houses. And I was like, what is happening on people are not well. And it's like, they're not dealing with themselves. They're going online. Um, and this may be links, but RJ, I, I'm going to go back and listen to your sermon because I think that those are the kind of sermons we need right now. And I think the thing about preaching is when you preach to the individual, which is not a thing we do a lot in mainline Christianity, frankly, um, we tend to preach to the communal and I understand the impulse because Dave, as you were saying, we don't want to deal with ourselves. But the, the powerful thing is that when you preach the individual, you're actually preaching to heal the communal Mm. but when you preach to the communal no one ever has to examine their own hearts right it always keeps us a key it it puts a barrier between us and having to deal with ourselves so it's really important i think i mean you know i know this is not a preaching podcast but when we think about getting in the pulpit i mean that's that's why people like rj have been such a huge influence on my preaching because you always preach the individual i mean that you know that that's kind of where it starts um so 
you know, and I think Lana Del Rey is kind of preaching to the, to the individual here in this piece. Um, yeah. And, but let me, I need to say something though too. Um, David Browder, who's a, a, a you know, friend of Mockingbird, he's a priest in, in Houston, Texas, great guy. Um, and he worked in the quote unquote secular world for a while before he went to seminary and became a priest. But the, the, the sermon that started him on his path to the priesthood was one that your dad gave, Dave, in Birmingham on Ash Wednesday, or was it Good Friday? Maybe good, it was Good, good Friday. Friday. Yeah, and like, you know, if you, if you want to go heavy, you know, Paul's all sermon on Good Friday is about the heaviest <laughs> of the heavy. But the sermon started with, and, and Dave, David Browder was working in politics at the time across the street from the church, and he was like, oh, what the heck, it's Good Friday, I'll go to church. And he, wasn't, he was really not even really a Christian. But the sermon started with, um, there's a razor-thin line between reality and suicide. Oh my word! That's how the sermon started, and and it hit David like a ton of bricks, and he's Ooh. like, "This guy is talking about reality." And the reason I bring that up is because you know, facing yourself is a thing, mm. but if you're tr- if you're trying to face yourself without hope, mm. yeah, it's not going to go well. It's not going to go you know. Well. And it reminds me what Tim Crider said when he inexplicably spoke at a Mockingbird conference a few years ago, who's an atheist, and he got up and said, I told all my friends I was going to speak at this Christian conference, and they were like, what are, what are they thinking having you come speak? But he gave an amazing talk, and one of the things he said was he said, you know, 150 years ago, uh, Nietzsche declared the end of God, mm. you know, and we've been living like, and, and that he was, he was sort of right, and for the last 100 years or so, we in the Western world have been experimenting what it looks like to live without God, and he would say, even I as an atheist would have to admit, it's not going well. Oh, my word. You know? And so, like I said, f- facing yourself is a thing, but if you're going to try to face yourself and your darkness and your inconsistency and, and the, you know, without hope, without yes. any sense of belovedness or forgiveness or grace or someone outside of yourself that can help you when you can't help yourself, right. that's not, I mean, that's not hopeful. Well, you like, don't, I know yeah. what she's saying, I know, and, she, and, and she says it, right? Like, she said, I'm not a holy roller, but we seem to be looking up. I hope people are looking up, because if you're only looking in, if you're only looking down, it's not going to go well. <laughs> and if they're finally looking up, and they get to the church door, and it's locked, what's going to happen? <laughs> oh, God. Missed opportunity. Uh, www. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> worship with us online. What? Uh. I'm in pain right now. Uh, the, uh, the Sarah, I want to pick up on something you just said, though, about online discourse. There was a remarkable uh, review of a new book called The Twittering Machine. That's a phrase from the painter Paul Clay uh, that uh, Richard Seymour has written. And uh, the review is by Max Reed. And it's it was in Book Forum, which is um, usually very dense intellectual articles. This happened to be the same week that the documentary The Social Dilemma came out uh, on Netflix. Yeah. And if you haven't watched it, I would say that it is sort of required uh, viewing. Um, it, it's, it just interviews so many actual executives, people who were there in the room when a lot of these social media platforms were being uh, launched. And um, it just, it, 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 on the one hand, they all say that we thought we were doing something good. And it also just talks about how um, 
you know, if, if you're not, what's the, what's the line? If you're not paying for the product, that means you are the product. Mm, uh, yeah. Very scary. And just trying to bring sort of an ethical edge to it. But it's not just a couple out, outliers. It's like the people that were the head of Pinterest, the head of, uh, you know, Instagram. You know, it, it was, anyway, it's, it's worth watching. I think it's, um, it's, it's a, feels a little like homework, frankly. Um, and you might just want to, you know, watch another episode of that Hillary Swank show. I understand. I um, finished it already, so now you know. On to, then I watched Challenger. That's also done. So anyway, I continue. thought about watching it last night. I want you to know that. But the Food Network had a Halloween Bake Off. So <laughs> I mean, if you're if you're on Netflix, just go for the Chef's Table barbecue stuff. That, that's I mean, the, this is the thing. I mean, how but can you yeah. how can you pass that up? Uh, but here's what here's what Max Reed says. He says this is it. The Twittering machine is powered by an insight at once obvious and underexplored. We have, in the world of so the social industry, become scripturient, meaning possessed by a violent desire to write incessantly. Our addiction to social media is at its core a compulsion to write. Through our comments, updates, DMs, and searches, we are volunteers in a, quote, great collective writing experiment. The rise of print, Seymour points out, played a crucial role in developing the idea of the modern nation, not to mention the bureaucratic state and industrial civilization. Now that epoch is ending, and a new revolution in literacy is extending the ability to write in public to billions of people worldwide. What will our new digital writing culture call into existence? Well, for many years, Silicon Valley's answer to that question has been freedom, prosperity, and digital utopia. An interconnected world in which progress and interchange wouldn't be obstructed or censored by the powerful. And, as Seymour acknowledges, our urge to write demonstrates, quote, how much was waiting to be expressed under the previous regime, during which access to large audiences was sharply limited by powerful gatekeepers, and the vast majority of ordinary people were relegated to the letters to the editor page if they were given a voice in print at all. In practice, however, what we have isn't a new political order, but a new kind of social life. The social industry wants us to keep writing, and writing, and writing, and writing, rendering legible, analyzable, and profitable nearly all our basic social interaction. And while massive Facebook server farms whirring away in Scandinavia might be able to make some vague sense of all that data, the rest of us can barely hear above the noise. Each new bite of information adds confusion and entropy and takes us further away from meaning and consequence. As Seymour points out, we've only just set aside prophecies of inevitable internet-born emancipation, and we should be careful not to make the same competent mistake in reverse, with moralizing panicked screeds about inescapable algorithmic radicalization. What is scarier, anyway, than the idea that we've trapped on a collision course with TikTok totalitarianism is Seymour's insistence that we're not trapped at all. That, in fact, we are part of the machine, and we find our satisfactions in it, however destructive they may be. Whatever dark future we hurtle toward, we are co-pilots on the journey. If we are compelled to write, it is because, quote, because of, quote, something in us that is waiting to be addicted. A lack, a desire, a deficiency that we seek to address. Is it a longing for connection? A yearning for fame? If so, posting is a poor strategy. You are as likely to lose friends as you are to make them, and online celebrity is only ever 240 character ways from characters away from online infamy. So why do we keep participating in an activity that acts against our interests and gives us no particular pleasure? Is self-destruction, in some perverse way, the yield? And he traces this to Freud's idea that human beings have a death drive. 
beyond the pleasure principle is the desire to to die. Um, Now, heavy, (laughs) heavy stuff in relation to social media. Nice light episode today. Uh, yeah, suicide. Just, uh, suicide yeah. episode. Reality. Just the doctor Don't order really on the first day of fall. Yeah, it's just great. Just in everything. But it's the great mm-hmm. question, isn't it, about social media? If we all know that it does nothing but drive us crazy, although we get occasional dopamine hits from you know the likes and stuff like that. Uh, th- I, what I found interesting was, 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 was what he was saying about it being um, a revolution in writing. That so, there's so that. many words, and this idea that there was so much waiting to be expressed, and that's yes. the good part of this, is yes. that people are able to express uh, what has been tamped down. Yeah, and I love the fact that a lot of the gatekeepers have been have been uh, you know dismantled, and yet, yeah. and yet, when all that writing just becomes data that people can sell stuff to you with, it it gets pretty dark pretty quickly. What what, what do you guys thought about this? I think about this all the time um, because mostly because I, as a mother, live in terror that my children will look up and be like, I'm going to sue you and we're never going to speak again because you have taken my image and put it on the internet. Um, I mean, that is like a constant fear of mine to the point that like I post their image a whole lot less. Um, uh, So there's that. And then, but even still, like I still participate in it. And let's be clear, love it. Um, and so, like, I still wonder if history will judge me for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do absolutely love this idea, though, that this has given people a place to write. Because one thing I've learned in being a writer is, like, I probably have a conversation with someone once a week about, like, how did you start writing and how do I start writing and all this stuff? And I think this is this incredible way for people to, to, to have access to immediately be able to sort of publish something, um, which is both great and terrifying, right? Cause sometimes people publish stuff they shouldn't publish, but I don't know. I also am, I, I would push against the idea that there's like nothing of value beyond just our own dopamine hits, because I do think, there's really beautiful connection that happens in these platforms. And, um, you know, I had this like horrible theater teacher, uh, in high school who just was like crazy and she's dead now. So like recently, so like, (laughs) it's like, I'm not supposed to say anything bad about her, but she was nuts. And, um, and a girlfriend from high school who was like the loveliest person, but like, always wanted a big part, always auditioned. This teacher was so awful to her, never gave her anything good, you know, and was always like, you can be on crew. Um, <laughs> just sucked. And, um, and she put this friend is like now working at inner city school. And she's like, I'm going to start like, she like put up in there. She's like, I'm going to start a thespian troupe. Like, cause that's what we were, which yes, people always made the lesbian joke, but anyway, it was Mississippi. <laughs> so she's starting her own thespian troupe at this like black high school she's working at. And we immediately like, Everyone put up these like memories and encouragements for her of like what that had been like for us. And like that is I would never have gotten that. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that's such a beautiful gift. Like I was like, don't only give them monologues from the glass menagerie. There are other plays, you know, (laughs) like it was just amazing. So I don't know. I really pushed back against this idea that it's Yes, they are taking our information. Yes, they are selling it. But, like, there's also some really beautiful connection that happens. That's true, Sarah. That's the best part of social media is when you, um, you know, post something that's kind of, you know, personal and, and you reconnect with people that you haven't uh, 
seen forever, you know, like I, I posted a little video about our drive-in worship service we're doing and some guy that I sang in choir with in high school, Michael Petrona, who's a great guy that I haven't talked to in forever, was like, I know that guy, I recognize that hair, you know, Aww. and it was, uh, that was, it was very sweet. Um, I'm not on Twitter. I only really, I, mean, I guess I technically am and I check in on it like twice a year or something. Um, but I do, you know, people repost things from Twitter to Facebook, which I am on. And usually they're either really angry or feeling really self-justified, you know. And it's like, this might not be terribly helpful. Um, I know what you mean, Sarah. There, there are very good things about it, the way that it allows you to quickly and easily stay connected to people all across the world that it would otherwise be difficult to stay connected to. And I know Ben Madison has done amazing thin, things on TikTok, and he has this incredible Bible study going. He's another priest we're connected to in New Jersey. Yeah. So there are really good things that happen. Um, but yeah, there's also a lot of really bad stuff that that happens. And and uh, the, the thing that came to my mind, I'm going to talk about my, my wife for just a sec, who... Um, has started and runs this kind of amazing business, but a business that really has almost no social media presence whatsoever. And in fact, like she had an Instagram account, it got stolen. She never got it back. Her Facebook account also just this week, like on our day off, like I, I was actually up playing tennis mm -hmm. a Saturday and I'm on my way back and she's like, someone took over my Facebook account, you know? But I'm like, luckily you only have 200 likes. So like, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't make a difference. But she, she hired this um, young woman, recent uh, college grad to sort of help out in the office here in Florida. And, and this woman is very social media savvy. And she's kind of like, how did you build this business when you have no social media presence whatsoever? It's you know, so like, how is that even possible? And it's a reminder, like, it is possible. And it, it's this really powerful thing that maybe in some ways at the end of the day also just doesn't matter. You yeah. know, like, it's such a weird thing. It's like, does it matter? Does it not matter? Is it everything? Is it nothing? Is it destructive? I don't know. I mean, clearly people are thinking and, and reading a lot about it. But... um but as someone who's just older and not on social media that much, I don't know, man. Yeah, it's really hard because I've been really wanting to get off Facebook just at least until after. Well, you did one time. You did once before. Yeah. For a long time. For, yeah. For 12 years, you know. And yeah. I, I, and, 12 and I years. Didn't, and, and you know what? We were able to build Mockingbird without it. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've enjoyed some of the reconnections that I've had on that, but also like it. It, it it does all the things that I would say social media does to a person, and you you have to you know you have to reckon with how you're presenting yourself constantly and 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 comparisons to other people. But any but I've been wondering like can I can I afford to get off this in terms of someone who is interested in you know uh, helping Mockingbird do do well and helping people listen to this podcast mm. and and all and 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 people interact with things you know in that way and so the truth is probably uh, it'd be fine if you know I, I got off but what I what I love about this piece is that once again. Uh, People's motivations for doing things are often opaque to the, the person themselves. Mm. And uh, if we continue to act in such a way um, that is demonstrably destructive or uh, uh, hurtful <laughs> to us over time, and, 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 and you know, they, they interview, in The Social Dilemma, they interview all these executives that are like, we were so excited about all these things that were happening. We just, they had such a high anthropology, and this is... Uh, this oh, is Silicon Valley, yeah. that they didn't really realize that people, um, that there would be a, d a dark side. 
and that in fact all of these tools for connection were going to produce basically the opposite. And um, there was, I think, uh, Jamel Bowie this week in um, in the New York Times penned an op-ed saying Facebook has been an unmitigated disaster for the world. And what he was talking about was the fact that tons of governments like you know Bolivia and uh, uh, Vietnam have tried to influence Facebook to basically. Um, skew elections and but also to to really root out certain things and it's been a it's become a totalitarian um tool and I, you could say it's been a totalitarian tool on on all sides the of the time. equation but it was it's very scary so i just think that when he when he says that maybe there's something in us that's waiting to be addicted i mean i i think he's talking about uh, you know, the, our yearning for God. I think that that's mm. the transcendence. The, the. Uh, so I, I see that I see, you, you can't help but look at social media and see this, this howling digital wind and think that it's, it's, it's this writhing human need for something, uh, good and uh, co- some some sort of connection that goes beyond, goes beyond likes and dislikes, but that actually has a, a connection to the divine. Um, so that's what I liked. I liked, and I, I do think that people's motivations when it comes to these things are largely, uh, they're not always completely transparent to us. And you can look back at something and be like, gosh, I thought I was into this for that reason. But in fact, I was lying to myself. I was really just mm. uh, enjoying the the vitriol. I was like, uh, I was loving it. It was, it, that was the real drug. Um, and part of me needed to feel something because I felt dead otherwise. And that, that, that sort of stuff. Now, on that, <laughs> gosh, thanks, Dave. What a great episode. We're going to go to something lighter now. But we're going to something lighter that I think. Well, wait, can I, can I, can I say, let me, yeah. let me say something though. Okay. So this actually goes back to the Lana Del Rey article. Like I liked what she said about, you know, relationships and mental illness. The, the, towards the end, she and um, her producer, who's her interviewer, start sort of congratulating themselves for knowing everything yeah. mm. on earth, you know? And I was like, you know, and there is, that's the danger of social media to some degree. It does give you this illusion that you know what's going on out there or you know what people are really like. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've all had this experience where you know someone personally on a personal level and you love them, they're the best, and then you see the stuff they post on social media and you're like, oh, like, OMG. Yeah, now you know, I have to and, hate you. Well, no, but you don't. I mean, I just, I, you know, I just ignore, like, I just ignore it. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I mean, to the, the, sure. to, to the degree which you think that that you know, interacting with people on social media is the same as actually interacting with who they are or who they, what they would be like if you met them face to face or the kind of relationship you could actually have. That's not, that's not helpful or the illusion it gives you that you understand everything, which, you know, again, Lana Del Rey a little bit went into that. It's like, come on, give me a break. And that, that goes back to the, the personal is universal, right? That if you want to, if you want to speak universally, the best you can do is actually get to know people and actually get to know yourself um, in a face to face you know, let's sit down and talk or like, let's, I, can I also say like, I'm so sick of email. Mm. Like I want to, I actually want to talk on the phone. Spoken to like now. a rector. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> sick of it. Like, let's pick up the phone. I mean, I've been sick of email for a long time, but, um, and email yeah. has been sick of you. <laughs> yeah, it has. It has. I'm sure. And I'm sure people are sick of getting emails to me. So there are these tools we have, but like, let's, that, that can be useful in certain sorts of ways. But, um, you know, if you're longing to understand the world, to connect to people, I do, I think you go, you know, this goes back to what, um, Anne Lamont said in her amazing book on writing bird by bird, you know, that if you want to write something really universal, you get as specific and particular as you possibly can. 
and that's the way you're going to connect, right? You you don't go wide. You go you go narrow, 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 narrow. Um, and I think that's kind of true relationally as well as um, you know, literarily, li mm -hmm. liter literary wise. Anyway, no, I think I think you're 100 percent so. right. And um, I will say. Uh, Sarah, at least I know that you're active on Instagram, and you probably get um, very personalized ads. I don't know, or maybe maybe you do. I do. I do. Oh, yes. I'm constantly getting these, these, and I get those too. It's bizarre. It's it's crazy. And talk about the universal becoming particular in a in a way that's like, wait a second, didn't I just look for that on Amazon? <laughs> I, what's yeah. happening here? Um, yeah. But one of the things that we're if you're if you've been on social media in the last little while, you're probably getting a lot of marketing uh, for brands that look very similar. And uh, there's a word for this. They're called blands. Uh, now, <laughs> let me explain it to, to you because it, this is a new word for me, but not a new phenomenon at all. This is from Ben Schott in Bloomberg, which comes to us from Addy uh, uh, Jenkins. Welcome to your bland new world. And uh, he starts by talking about Colgate has a new smart toothbrush called Hum. And it very closely resembles another one called Quip. And Quip is equally flattered by Gobi, Burst, Boca, Bruche, Gleam, and Shine. Shine spelled S-H-Y-N. Nope. <laughs> but you might have, you know what I'm talking about here. For all those other people who brush their teeth. That's going to be what all the millennials name their third kid. Shine. Okay. <laughs> Uh, this oh. is indicative of a new consumer. Aren't you a millennial? I am. A new consumer. Okay. I world. might have a third, and if I do, he or she Shine. will be Sean with a Y. Yeah. This is indicative of a new wider consumer war between brands and blands. What makes a brand a bland is duality. Claiming simultaneously to be unique in product, groundbreaking in purpose, and singular in delivery, while slavishly <laughs> obeying an identikit <laughs> formula of business model, look and feel, and tone of voice. And the naming tropes are all the same. They emerge again and again. Oftentimes it's named after a character, either something calculatedly generic like Judy, Floyd, Henry, Billy, Maud. Those are all blands. That, that, yeah. uh, or Harry's. I'm, I'm familiar with The, the, the these, shaving. Yes. Or yeah. studiously cool, Warby Parker derives from two Jack Kerouac characters. War Warby Parker is one of the originals here. I'm like, don't be hating on Warby Parker. <laughs> Casper. The mattress company, these are evergreen. These are all blands. Certain uh, bland catchphrases are endlessly recycled in the marketing. This is incredible. A quote, attention to detail, timeless craftsmanship, thought <laughs> thoughtfully sourced, simple and seasonal, chef crafted. If you're on one of those meal delivery things that I, apparently they really want me to sign up for. Um, <laughs> You'll do it for like two weeks, and then you'll be like, this is no longer worth Everyday it. Everyday essentials. Yeah. A membership designed around you. Join our community. Fits in with your busy life. We make it easy. We're passionate about. We're obsessed with. We never settle. Tireless dedication <laughs> to quality. Vi visually, blands are simple, neutral, and flat. The palette is plain and pastel with the occasional vibrant splash. The mood is upbeat and happy or pensive and cool, but never truly real. The dress code is smart casual. Blands are always positioned as underdogs. Although they're funded by angel investments, venture capital, and private equity, brands, blands present themselves as scrappily uncorporate. Quote, we didn't create Oscar because we liked health insurance. Quite the opposite. Or, Monica and Andy wasn't born in a boardroom. It was born in a delivery room. Um, all blands are individuals, like, uh, like Brian of Nazareth, I guess, is another <laughs> bland. But blands always have a narrative. 
Rarely do brands declare, we were founded to exploit a niche and leverage venture capital until the target of our disruption buys us out. Instead, they proffer origin stories that mash up the indie movie uh, Meet Cutes with aspirational grail quests. Like the one for Candid. Once upon a time, five of us started talking about our teeth. Dot, dot, dot. Blands are humble. Blands <laughs> pledge to do one thing well. And in doing so, they present as a calm oasis amidst a chaos of commerce. Many Blands work hard to position themselves as affordable luxuries or premium mediocrity. That's <laughs> another word for it. Many Blands attempt to coax users into memberships and subscriptions, using the language of community and convenience to create long-term commitments to traditionally fleeting purchases. But you'll note that Blands are ineluctable. Despite embodying the vanguard of consumer capitalism, Blands tend to be subtly Soviet, quasi-post-apocalyptic. Even within a saturated market, every Blands message is somehow a post-choice totalitarian inevitability. There is only one mattress. There is only there one can be razor. only one. There is only one chef-inspired human-grade subscription service dog food. <laughs> While there is nothing disreputable in blitz scaling for an exit, it does rather undermine the David versus Goliath bland narrative. Uh, meaning they always end up selling out to uh, Colgate in the end or, uh, or uh, you know, the larger Serta mattresses. But um, have you guys, do you guys know, does this ring a bell? I feel so mad at you right now because you've like ruined everything that makes me happy. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I mean, I own some of these products. Just last night, I sent my husband while we were on the couch together, staring at our phones while a, um, a program was on the on the television. Um, I sent him a link to a watch that I want. Um, that is like all the other watches I get ads for on Instagram, but is from Australia. Shout out to Stephanie Phillips. And um, I wanted it. It's literally called, the watch is called The Classic. Okay. <laughs> yep. And it's it's funny to me because even the, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm also thinking about kind of the way that um, home decor kind of looks when these things are, are, you know, and I buy these things. I buy, they didn't even get into the makeup. There's so many mm. lines of of like lip gloss that will change your life. Uh, you know, a face mask that like you won't have to wear makeup anymore because I'm fairly certain it dyes your skin orange. But anyway, there's all these like different levels, but but they advertise in this like <laughs> it's um like everything is white and there's a green plant. You know, yep, like that's yep. also like so there's this like fascinating I have to say that there that so, Southern Living has this hilarious um like I wish I could remember is it I can't remember the guy's name but um gardening section and it's he's called the Grumpy Gardener mm-hmm. and um recently he gave advice to a woman who wrote in because she was opening up a plant nursery and she's like what kind of plants should i have and he's like get a bunch of them green plants that young people put in white rooms with no furniture (laughs) (laughs) so i do think it's all part of this like look of and this is the word actually that comes to my mind purity yeah yeah, it's it's it, yeah. I, there's only I, one I, mattress. There's all yeah, and like like that this will be like the answer. And I can say as someone because I don't want any person to listen to this and to feel guilty about buying these things, but I can say as someone who has purchased many of these things that you know have a single name that you could name you know your child or um, tampons that come in the mail on a subscription. Um, they, it's not it's it's not like it. It, you never get there. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, 
you, there's all this, like you order it and then it comes in and you're like, well, I mean, this is just a toothbrush. Like it's a weird, like. <laughs> the unboxing is really exciting. Like the, you know, the, the, un- the packaging oh, is amazing. Sure. Well, I'm on like three clothing subscriptions. Like I get boxes <laughs> in all the time. If you're, if yeah, you're a man I in mean, your 40s, what they're, they're advertising to you about how like, you know, like propitiation. Pro- you don't have time to shop. You don't know what to wear. They're like you're a fashion moron. Idiot. Your hair is your <laughs> yeah, hair exactly. is thinning. But here's a new way to do it. You know, to, or or obviously it's like I think Roman is the one that's about a kind of oh, yeah. erectile dysfunction, and it's like, yeah, yeah, but it's yeah. like it looks cool. It's got pastels, and it's named after yeah. something Roman, and you're feeling yes. like virile, and you're like, wait a second, why do I keep getting these? There's um, there's a woman who started a company. I mean, allegedly, this is their story. This is the worst one for me. She started a company that. It's the equivalent, I think, for women. Mm-hmm. So it's like dealing with like, I guess you can get birth control or whatever through her. But you can also get like treatments for UTIs. And she, it's literally like, like you'll be like scanning through Instagram. It'll be like pleasant pictures of your friend's kids. Like, oh, there's a cute puppy. And then it'll be like, after having 11 UTIs in a year. And I'm like, oh my God. I don't, that's not a good story. Yeah, but the packaging, is, the packaging is very simple and cool. Oh yeah. And it's like really like, it's just like so everything is so chic but you do wonder like i mean we look back at the 80s and we're like what were we thinking like visually and it will be really fascinating i mean i think there's a sense of when i look at the design i think there is a sense of simplicity and purity i also think there's a sense of like some sort of like um Soviet era, like, do you know what I mean? Like, you can only get this one box of hair color. Yeah, yes. it's acknowledging it's just... the the paradox of choice that people, if they have too many choices, they won't choose anything. Yeah, yes. and, and it's 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 marketing to people's again to their existential angst and their confusion. And life is so tough. I really just want uh, the razors to come uh, every month and not worry about it. And maybe you know what? Hey, while I'm there, I'll also get some uh, shampoo and some soap because I don't want to deal with any of this stuff because life is mm-hmm. life is tough. And uh, you. I mean, do you guys have stuff for UTIs? Great. Can I put that in the car? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, I also want a weighted blanket. I, I hear there's only one. Um, oh, I'm obsessed with weighted blankets. Well, That's the other thing. It's just the, <laughs> just the language that they use. Like, I was like, I could have written for this. Like, when they're like, we're obsessed with. I'm like, oh, my God. This is like, I just feel so seen and like everything in my life is And it's now. always very, very... Uh, value i mean i didn't mention the stuff they're always very heavily laden with values more than like any christian brands would be i mean they're they're they're, before (laughs) it's like you can sign up for the subscription but have you registered to vote yet i mean (laughs) it's like yes uh what um yeah (laughs) i I just i just really thought you know my my dog would like that food um but uh it makes me think of seculosity of course there's that i I remember putting up a picture one time uh, that uh, from a Qualtrics conference, which was sort of a, you know, a, a tech conference that said, turn customers into fanatics, products into obsessions, employees into ambassadors, and brands into religions. And in, 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 in wrapping purpose, narrative, personality, purity all into one, there is at least unconsciously a religious impulse being exploited here. And again, I'm all for signing up for these things. It Life is so hard. It is great to simplify it with with a subscription service that you actually like, um, and yet, it, if you dig a little deeper, it it, it I, I feel like I'm being manipulated, and uh, and I am, and maybe I'm, maybe we can be happy to be manipulated. 
But a lot of, this sounds weird, a lot of these subscription services or anything that allows you to just stay home and never have to go anywhere, it, it, uh, they so minimize the kind of spontaneous interactions you might have with people that I feel like life, or, life is made up of. You know, like my wife loves to um, grocery shop online, which is very convenient. I get that. It, it just simplifies things. I miss going to the grocery store. You know, I miss taking Marshall to the grocery store because he just says hi to everybody Costco. and he's hilarious. Costco. You know, but, I, yeah. well, or, you know, HEB, actually. I really, I miss my HEB, I gotta say. Um, but, yeah, the idea of having to go somewhere and interact with someone to, uh, to, to find something you need as opposed to it just coming in a box in the mail, you know, it just seems like another way that we're sort of, you know, voluntarily isolating ourselves or maybe just creating more space to, to, <clears throat> work or or death scroll through our through our feeds yeah there's well, it definitely again. it definitely right. corresponds with the thing we talked about the spiritual consultants saying that like you know if, if brands have, have have really gotten the political activism and, and branding has really become one thing like with the gillette commercials and stuff like the next phase is this for spirituality to be to be melded with corporate culture and maybe that's what's happening with blands but the design is just too hard to uh, resist so anyway um any final thoughts on blands before we get into something a little bit i mean if any of our listeners are curious about a product just drop me an email because i probably bought it <laughs> uh, you'll let us know if it's sarah if will it's, send you a free sample the marketing yeah. is <laughs> sarah has a stockpile of every imaginable of product blands. yeah Yep, happy to send them along. Mm -hmm. Well, finally, we're going to talk about uh, last week, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and uh, the internet exploded with, it turns out, I mean, my, my cynicism is just off the charts, but it's like, all of a sudden, we were, we were all epidemiologists for a little while, then we were civil rights uh, historians, and then all of a sudden, everyone's judicial, like, fanboys, which I... I Growing up, I didn't know even know who the justices were. Now I get the fact. I don't want to make fun because this is this is a very serious person. Be careful, Dave. They will come for you. They will come for me. <laughs> I just never thought I'd see the day. And by they, Sarah means herself. It's, it's... Sarah means her, but like they're my people, and I can't help it. And like it's, I can't, I won't be able to stop them, Dave. That's what I'm telling you right now. I, I won't be able to stop them. I, I, I get it. We we all have heroes, but it just sure. if you told me when I was 18 that that this would be the kind of cult of personality around a judge um i just can i say something about this and then we can cut yeah. I, and I, I i just for me and i totally fall i mean you know I, I i do fall on the more liberal end of the spectrum if you've listened to this podcast at all you probably picked up on that but um and i was deeply sad that she died but i, I when rj talked earlier about being about self-examination and being hopeless and how like you, it's just a lethal combination. I just, the fact that, and, and maybe, maybe people are right. I, you know, maybe people are right. I, I understand all the repercussions for, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm an intelligent person. I understand how politics works. I understand how the Supreme court works, but the fact that it felt like for so many of us that are, the future of our country, the well-being of our children, all of this rested on the tiny, ancient, bird-like shoulders of this almost 90-year-old woman. And that people, when she died, 
seemed hopeless was deeply sad to me. Like at every level, it was deeply sad to me. I know this is not the feminist thing to say, and I get it, but the fact that she wasn't, the fact that she was still working at that age made me sad, I'll be honest. Um, I mean, and maybe it didn't make her sad, and maybe it didn't make anybody else sad. Maybe it just made me sad, and that's fine. I'm, I can do sad all by myself. But, like, I just... I don't know. It really struck me how hopeless people are. Like when she died, I don't, I don't, that was like the word all week for me was like, wow, Mm. people are really hopeless. Like this was people's last hope was this almost 90 year old woman. Um, Yeah. And I get it, but I'm also just like, wow, I I hope, you know, as Lana Del Rey said, I hope, I hope people can look up, Yeah. you know? Well, the, the, you know, I want to, we're going to read something that I found really remarkable in, in a lot of the tributes uh, to um, RBG. And this is a duo, Dickinson uh, highlighted this for Mockingbird in a piece called Love Across the Political Divide. And we wrote, it was Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were fully politicized. One was a rock of conservative thought, Scalia, the other an icon of liberal theory. Both went through the full vetting and voting of the U.S. government to be on the highest court we created. Both got over 90 votes out of 100 in the Senate. Both never let a contested decision go uncommented upon with extreme rigor and passion. This was serious business. The future of our culture was being wrecked or saved by their votes, and they almost always disagreed. They also loved each other. Both were idolized, quoted, and championed by those who believed as they did. Both were lionized in the constituent presses who followed them. Being heroic to those who believe in what you espouse is intellectual support. It buttresses what you believe. And yet love accepts the discord, maybe even enjoys it, if it ignores the ideological constructions we make. Michelle Obama and George Bush simply enjoy each other. It angers and outrages some, but they do not matter. How could they possibly love each other? Scalia, a robust Catholic. Ginsburg was a non-observant Jew. One a hunter, the other a thinker. One a white male in a time when white men ruled, the other a woman in a time of oppression and prejudice. But they loved each other. Those who knew them say they loved opera, food, and of course the law. But that is not why they and their spouses loved being together. They went on vacation a lot together. This weekend of Ginsburg's passing, Antonin Scalia's son Christopher revealed the secret sauce of their love for each other. They laughed. And what it, this prompted me to look up was uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's eulogy for Antonin Scalia uh, when he died. And uh, she, she said in that, uh, I'll read a, a couple paragraphs. She says, another indelible memory, the day the court decided Bush versus Gore, December 12, 2000, I was in chambers, exhausted after the marathon. Uh, review granted Saturday, briefs filed Sunday, oral argument Monday, and opinions completed and released Tuesday. No surprise, Justice Scalia and I were on opposite sides. The court did the right thing, he had no doubt. I disagreed and explained why in a dissenting opinion. Around 9 p.m., the telephone, my direct line rang. It was Justice Scalia. He didn't say, get over it. Instead, he asked, Ruth, why are you still at the court? Go home and take a hot bath. Good advice, I promptly followed. Once asked how we could be friends, given our disagreement on a lot of things, Justice Scalia answered, I attack ideas, I don't attack people. Some very good people have some very bad ideas, and if you can't separate the two, you've got to get another day job. Ginsburg says, I will miss the challenges and the laughter he provoked, his pungent, eminently quotable opinions, so clearly stated that his words never slipped from the reader's grasps, but I will also miss the roses he bought me on my birthday. 
Mm. To me, that was just a, such a charitable and beautiful portrait in the midst of, you know, as, as we've talked about, so much negativity and, and vitriol uh, to see this, this woman who was really, a, as you say, she was the uh, target of so many hopes on the political left, um, to know that as a, as a person she was uh, charitable and, and uh, deeply uh, good friends with the, someone who was on the opposite side, I mean, that's... That's grace, you know. That's uh, we we need more of that. I, I just was really touched by it. Um, uh, so in the midst of people who were using this as an opportunity to, to you know, to lecture or to to pump up their cause, here you had the the, the example that she set and that Scalia set maybe went beyond just ideology, and. Um, I don't know. There's something deeply gracious about this that I felt was worth highlighting. Two of you see it that way or a different way? I, it's funny. I was talking to my students about, and I can't remember who it was that said this. I feel like it might have been Tully and Tavijan several years ago, but that, you know, if you ask the person on the street what uh, Christianity was about, a random person, they would say probably like judgment, you know, um, being judgmental, and that the right answer is forgiveness. And I totally agree with that, but I actually wonder, you know, we've been talking a lot just as the, you know, as, as college students trying to navigate this heated political moment, um, that maybe if, if the right answer isn't like a sense of not being judgmental, like if that is more of the goal, because it's really choosing against relationship over and over again when we live in this space of constantly separating ourselves from other people. I mean, you know, we are in a neighborhood where the signs have started to come up uh, for people voting for the presidential election and for local elections. (laughs) And I'll be honest, I've had a few moments where I'm like, okay, you know, when I drive by somebody's house. (laughs) So that's what you're doing. Um, and I've really had to make the decision to kind of step around that knowledge and towards that person. And I think that that's the, you know, that's the example that we get, you know, from, from these two individuals. And that's, and I also think that is why in the wake of her death, this has been such a key story that people want to talk about over and over again. People need, desperately need this narrative right now that it is in fact, possible and not just possible that like joy can come from being in a relationship with people we disagree with. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I just really think, I really think that we don't know what God is doing in other people's hearts. And I think that part of the problem right now is that we've made the assumption that not only that God isn't doing anything in anyone's heart, but that we know what people's hearts consist of. Yeah. And I think it's really dangerous. Yeah, I was thinking about the the sermon this past week. The text, as I mentioned earlier, was the the Exodus passage of the Israelites being grumbling in the wilderness and complaining and saying, why did you bring us out here to die? And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so often 2020 has felt like a wilderness, you know, just where everything's all the Mm -hmm. the sources of life have dried up, the the desert. And with the Israelites, he was like, how did they get there? Um, Was it all their doing or was it? In fact, they did they know exactly how they got there, and that's that God led them there, mm-hmm. and that that was in fact He was about to show them He wasn't going to abandon them, 
But the, the desert <laughs> experience was not independent of God. In fact, it was the, the method and means. I, I found that to be tremendously hopeful in a time of... Um, what, 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 what does, you're right, feels like I, I, everywhere I look, I can't see, you know, hey, my last, like, potential source of life or hope just, just passed away. Like, what, what, what are you doing? Um, that, that, that story just speaks through the, through the millennia, I think, to, to you and I who are right here. The bread from heaven, you know. It made me think of marriage, actually. Because mm. um, oh, when, what, what I'm doing premarital counseling, um, in my experience, a successful marriage boils down to just like a few basic elements. One is like, do you enjoy spending time together? Are you hot for each other? And uh, can you laugh together? You know, uh, did you do you do you get each other's sense of humor? I think that's so huge. You know that that my for some inexplicable miraculous reason my wife thinks I'm funny. You know, and that what a, what a huge gift you found that the is. One. I did. <laughs> I'm glad someone thinks that. <laughs> oh, thanks. Someone. Oh, there, there is a God. There is a God. But how, um, you know, marital love is a, is, is a miracle. And in some ways, friendship is a miracle, right? Yeah. Finding someone who's willing to, to go on vacation with you, you know, to, to send you flowers, to spend time with you, who thinks you're funny. That is, that is a miracle. And when you find it, you don't worry too much about some of the things on which you might disagree, right? If, 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 any, if, if any couple or any friendship was submitted to the kind of scrutiny that Ginsburg and Scalia were, it could never survive, you know, because no two people agree on everything and have contradictory viewpoints. But if you just, yeah, I love the, the refrain of this article, but they loved each other, but they loved each other. That is, a, it's a miracle, um, and you don't, uh, you know, you don't question it, uh, hopefully not too much, uh, when it happens, you just enjoy it. And it's an encouragement. Sarah, you're going to say something. I just, I, I have to say, I have a friend, a very good friend here in Houston and, um, her husband is definitely voting for Donald Trump and she's definitely voting for Joe Biden. And she's fascinating to talk to. And I, I, I just... I'm so struck by the witness of that um, and the power of that when we feel like we have to like disown our neighbors, right? Or like, you know, write people off entirely because like they've put something up on the internet and now we have to hate them. Um, And people can can hold together a real marriage um, in the midst of the political moment that's happening in our country right now. It's just, it's incredible. It's like such a witness to me. Yeah. Because it, it really is, is if the default position is if, if you, if the, that, if you're voting for that person, then there's two options. You're either evil or crazy. And uh, right. you can't think about that. You cannot go punt to that with the person you're married to, you know, unless right. you just want to, right. so it's, that, that would be very interesting to sort of, I would love to. Maybe there'll maybe there'll be a podcast series done by some I'm, nice people that just get inside these relationships where two people are like yeah. that. Yeah, that's what we need more of. That I, yeah. I hear it so often. It's like, how could you possibly? That person right. must be insane. And you think like, well, if you right. don't have the imagination to 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 just go be to, to just entertain for a second that they're not either of those. They're not crazy or evil. Like, um, and and to somehow get in between that, then we really don't have hope for. Uh, the the country. I mean, that's uh, imagination is one of the things that I think is missing, and I think it's one of the things that social media, frankly, uh, 
is it works against because it keeps us so um, addicted, as we say. Um, imagine, it, although the memes, the memes are great. Uh, we've talked about it before. <laughs> Love the memes. If I only knew what a meme was. <laughs> you guys are so old. Um, it reminds me too what happened a couple weeks ago, which I don't think we ever mentioned. How um, Kellyanne Conway and George Conway both at the same time decided oh, yeah. to like step away from yeah. public life. You know, she who has been one, you know, tr- led Trump's election campaign. He who's like head of the Lincoln Project. Right. You know, and it was all in response to like a, a tweet that their teenage daughter. Yep. Put out, and they're like, "That's it. We're it's over. We're, we're, we're done. We're pulling out. We're focusing mm-hmm. on what matters." And I found that was hopeful to me, actually. Again, we're back to the the, the first article, and the uh, we one of yes. the ways that we can have hope. And people would say, "Oh, you're, this is easy for you to say," but I really don't. I don't. I see it as transcending is all hope easy sorts for anybody of, right now. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, but uh, it, it transcends all sorts of barriers. You know, remember yeah. when we talked about? Uh, I think it's that in Eat, Pray, Love. I think, or or one of those books, uh, they, they interview all those Cambodian refugees who are doing it, and they interview them as like, oh, "What are you?" thinking about and they're all thinking about the relationships that they had with people on the boat and they're like Mm. you know she slept with my he with my cousin and now i'm so mad and and i I think that one of the reasons for hope is to know that people are actually more similar than than they're not and one of the and by that i mean that they're all dealing with uh what gets exposed during these times what clearly got exposed to the conways is that there are things that are more important um and uh, okay, maybe that's privilege talking, but I, I don't I don't think so. I think it's like the stuff you think about on your deathbed, the the names, the relationships. It has to do with uh, and those things are the things that are you're going to be on your mind when you get to God. It's it's not going to be um, the, the 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 election of 2020. It just won't be. I I, no. I can I can predict that with uh, with almost 100 percent confidence. There, it doesn't mean the things aren't important. Of course, it, uh, that's what people hear when you say that. It's like, are you saying it doesn't matter who we vote for? Of course, it matters. You know, and and it's within uh, you know Spotify's right to, to ask me to register to vote every time I log on. But it's it's <laughs> it's not the, the what I wanted from and to subscribe to the Joel Rogan podcast. What I want is from Spotify is to listen to songs about love. <laughs> You know, and about nostalgia and the past, and and these things that connect me to how God has worked in my life. That's the, that's where I'm after. I'm not actually thinking about the uh, policy changes and partisan th- issues. So, and uh, Dave, it's funny you said. I've been thinking a lot about that, and sort of the 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 masthead of the mocking um, the mocking recorderly. You know, to care and not to care. Mm-hmm. That's so powerful because I, I find. There's so much in my life that feels so important and so heavy, and it's like the more important it feels and the heavier it feels, it's like the less I want to think about it. But if I'm just like, okay, this is important, but it's it's not that big of a deal, then suddenly some space opens up to move forward, you know, and to and to to act in love and joy and freedom, and not the sense of everything being so heavy all the time, and um. And Sarah, gosh, you were talking about misplaced faith and hope. It, it reminds me, there was some podcast I was listening to where someone was talking about either their parent or someone they knew who was like on their deathbed and they were dying, but they were just waiting for the release of the Mueller report so they could die in peace. And now it's like, you think about that and it's like, who even, like, what, what, like, remember the Mueller report? Yeah, remember that? Remember like, that. and now it's just like, what even, like, who cares? Right. Like, that was, like, it's so... And I, I did see something on social media which was helpful, something about um, 
how all these things we concern ourselves, and I think it was talking particularly about sort of patriotism, right? And patriotism matters, but how it's it's all too small for Jesus. Oh, it's all yeah. just too small. Yeah. You know, it's it's he he's so much bigger than any of that. He's so much bigger and yet also so much more so much smaller, so much more individual, so much more specific, right? That um Whenever uh, his disciples try to get him to talk, to Jesus to talk about somebody else, oh, look what they're doing, look what's going on over there, how about those people? Jesus always like, no, no, what about you? Mm-hmm. You know, what about you? It's, it's sort of, again, that mixture of the, the specific and particular um, that really is the, what matters. That's the universal. Well, why don't we end it there, RJ? Who do, who do, you, do, who do you say that I am, RJ? You're the Philip Seymour Hoffman character in Almost Famous. <laughs> At the, at the <laughs> okay. <laughs> On that note, I, w- w- Sarah, you have to answer the question now. Would you rather have a hole in your head that where people could see all your thoughts, or would you rather be dead? Like, what's what's your answer? What? How did? I already have a hole in my head where people can see all my thoughts. So That's I'm, right. I'm Annie, false Annie Connan just doesn't realize that yeah. yet. So. <laughs> she will. Yeah. She's in for a rude awakening. The more questions like that she asks, I love it. I can't wait. I know. All right. Uh, Love you too. Talk to you soon. Love you guys. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time.